Good morning. If you came for the the person who, you know, like you can go to the show on Broadway and they say the understudy will be playing the part of whomever. I'm Beth Walker and I'm um, Rod's understudy this morning. <laughs> you know, as, as we get older and reflect back on our lives, and I would have never thought I would be able to say those words because I always wanted, you know, I thought getting old was not a good thing, right? I would guess that most of us would want to leave more than a financial inheritance or even a good name to those who follow us. For Christ followers, we want to leave a legacy of lives touched by love and by the power of God. In other words, a lot of us have an inner desire to go beyond success to significance. We want our lives to mean something and to make a difference. Christ followers are set free to live significant lives because of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. We no longer have to worry about working off our sins or doing things just to please God. With God's love and forgiveness, we are empowered to make our mark on life, to make a difference. In other words, we are freed to leave a legacy. I'm sorry, I'm a real child person. It's going to be a hard not to keep looking at your little girl. <laughs> for me, the most profound time for thinking about this has been as I'm entering into later stages of my life, and I look back and reflect on the impact that I may have made on the world. Maybe you can relate. Or you look forward to the time that you have left, and you think through what you might do what you might want to achieve so that your legacy is a good one. And then sometimes we might even think about the legacy we're leaving at the stage we call midlife. At this point, there is still time to change a career, change a relationship, take up new hobbies, or give up old patterns of behavior. The midlife crisis is not necessarily a negative thing, in that it helps us reflect and make good decisions about the legacy we will leave. Now, for Head Start teachers and all of our staff, we, it's um, a time that at the beginning of the year and at the end of the year, we're looking to see whose lives we may have touched. How have we impressed upon them? But if we also thought about the legacy that we leave in every social interaction in which we engage through each week, Every time we talk with someone, or email them, or phone them, we're leaving an impact on their lives, for good or for bad. Or the spiritual legacy that we leave to our children and our grandchildren and others in our church family. Or the impact that we will have on the community where God has uniquely positioned us. In Acts 1, 6-11, we read the story of Jesus' ascension back to heaven and his parting words to his followers. As we hear their story today, let us focus on the legacy that Jesus is leaving his disciples. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? He replied, The Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. 
After saying this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching, and they could no longer see him. As they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. There are some things in the Bible that are hard to believe, and this reading from the book of Acts may be one of them. This moment when Jesus, after saying goodbye to his disciples, is lifted up in a cloud and takes them out of their sight, it's probably not the most unbelievable thing in the Bible, but it's right up there. We know more today than people did in those days. We know that heaven isn't necessarily up there somewhere. Our astronauts have been up there, haven't they? They have looked around and they haven't found it. And any middle schooler would want to know where did Jesus go when he ascended? To the moon? To Mars? To Jupiter? No, probably not. He was lifted up. Luke says, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Again, it's not the hardest thing in the Bible to believe. Some might say that if you can believe the first verse in the Bible, the one that says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, then everything else will be easy. It is easy for some people because they take everything in the Bible literally. If it says Moses parted the Red Sea, then he did it. If it says Jonah was swallowed by a whale, then he was. And if it says Jesus was carried up to heaven in a cloud, what's the problem? The problem is that some people aren't able to believe that easily. They stumble over those hard-to-believe passages, and sometimes, in frustration, they slam the Bible shut and walk away. Not all Christ followers believe that everything in the Bible was meant to be taken literally. We understand that there are many different types of literature in these 66 books and several different teaching methods. So it's okay to question and research and explore what the words of Scripture are trying to communicate to us. Not, did it really happen this way? But, what on earth is God trying to say to us? It's not that the question of whether or not it really happened is unimportant. It's only an acknowledgement that there is something even more important. And that is why what God is trying to say to us. The Bible is God's word. It's how God talks to us. This passage, for instance, where Jesus is lifted up and carried away by a cloud, might prompt us to ask, what on earth is God trying to say through this event we have come to call the Ascension? One thing seems clear. Jesus is leaving his disciples. At the end of Luke's Gospel, we are told that then Jesus led them to Bethany, and lifting his hands to heaven, he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up to heaven. The oldest and best manuscripts don't have that line about Jesus being taken up to heaven. They simply say he withdrew. He withdrew from his disciples. But if there was any misunderstanding, Luke tries to correct it in his second book, the book of Acts. Here he says that Jesus was taken up into a cloud while they were watching and they could no longer see him. And yet, in both accounts, whether Jesus was lifted up or simply withdrew, the result is the same. He was no longer physically present with his disciples. 
They may have thought he was gone on Good Friday, too, when he died on the cross. But on Ascension Thursday, 40 days after rising from the dead and presenting himself alive to his disciples by many convincing proofs, he is truly gone. The disciples have been left behind, but they have not been left to their own devices. Jesus has entrusted them with a mission. He has handed over the family business. Now, speaking of family businesses, we don't know much about Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, but we do know he was a carpenter. In Matthew 13, Jesus is in his hometown synagogue preaching on the Sabbath day when some of the locals begin to scoff and say, he's just the carpenter's son. In Mark's version of the story, they scoff and say, he's just a carpenter, son of Mary. How do you go from being the carpenter's son to being the carpenter? The Bible doesn't really say, but we can imagine. Think of Joseph working in his carpenter shop in Nazareth, and there's little Jesus, five or six years old, sitting on his father's workbench, watching every move he makes. How long would it be before Jesus said something like, let me try it? And Joseph would smile, pleased that his son was interested in his work. He would show him how to do something fairly simple at first, helping him, talking him through the steps, guiding his hands until Jesus could do it on his own. And even then, Joseph would keep an eye on him, making suggestions from time to time about how he might do it better. An apprenticeship is a system of training a new generation of practitioners in a trade or profession with on-the-job training and often some accompanying study, you know, like classroom work and reading. Most of the training is done while working for an employer who helps the apprentice learn their trade or profession. Apprenticeships can last as long as three to six years. And people who successfully complete an apprenticeship reach the journeyman level of competence and only after many more years of practice do they reach the level of a master. One is learning, one is teaching. For generations now, for centuries, this is how skills and knowledge have been passed along in the trades. We don't know how long Jesus had with Joseph. The biblical details are sketchy. We know that Joseph was there when Jesus was born. We know that he was there in the temple when Jesus was 12. But that's the last we hear of him. Somewhere between that visit to the temple and the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, Joseph must have died. In that time period, I believe that Joseph taught Jesus to be a carpenter and then handed over the family business. I can almost see Joseph on his deathbed, motioning for Jesus to come over and sit beside him. How old is Jesus? Maybe 18 or 19. There's a lamp flickering on the bedside table. Jesus sits down and looks at his father's old, tired face. Joseph says, son, and smiles at him. I'm not going to be around much longer. I want you to do two things for me. Jesus nods and a tear trickles down his cheek. First, I want you to take care of your mother. Promise? I promise, Jesus would say. And second, I want you to take over the family business. Can you do that? Jesus may not have wanted to. He had other plans. But what do you say in a moment like that when your dying father is begging you to do something for him? 
Jesus would have nodded again, and Joseph would have said, you're a good son and a good carpenter. You've learned everything I can teach you. I know you're going to make me proud. And then at some point after that, whether it was minutes or hours or days, Joseph would have breathed his last. And after a proper burial and an appropriate period of mourning, Jesus would have reopened his father's shop. And at some point, whether it was weeks or months or years later, Jesus would have become known as the carpenter. And some people would have said he was as good as his father. Whatever else is happening in this story of the ascension, Jesus is leaving his disciples, but he is leaving them with work to do. He is handing over the family business, but it's not carpentry. Joseph was not the only father Jesus had, remember? His heavenly father's business, to put it broadly, was the redemption of all creation. Jesus learned that business as well. He came to earth to practice that trade. He took on some apprentices who could learn it from him. And when it was time to go, he said, Now the mission is in your hands. What is that mission? Well, we talked about this last week, didn't we? At the end of Matthew's Gospel, in the passage we call the Great Commission, Jesus said something like this. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. That is, apprentices, because this business is only going to grow. You're going to need all the help you can get. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you so that they can take over when you are gone. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says, When I was with you before, I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said, Yes, it was written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. It was also written that this message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name, to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. There is forgiveness for all who repent. In the Gospel of John, Jesus comes into a locked room where his disciples are huddled together in fear and says, Again he said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Then he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. And finally, here in Acts, he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then according to Luke, Jesus lifts his hands to bless them, and as he does, he's lifted up and a cloud takes them out of their sight. It's one of the most unbelievable stories in the Bible. But if we have eyes to see it and ears to hear it, it is no different than the very believable story of Joseph handing over the family business to Jesus. In this case, Jesus is handing over the family business to his disciples. What is that business? It is the redemption of all creation. 
And as the gospel writers have made clear, it can be carried out in a number of different ways by making disciples, by proclaiming the good news, by preaching repentance and forgiveness of sins, by being sent as Christ was sent, and finally, by being his witnesses wherever we go. That should encourage us rather than discourage us because not everyone is the same. Not everyone has the same gifts. And if there are multiple ways of fulfilling God's mission, then certainly there is a way for us, for each of us, to play our part. Do you remember the story of the prophet Elijah? Do you remember how that story ends? While he and his protege Elisha were walking into the desert, a chariot of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah was carried into heaven by a whirlwind. It's one of the most unbelievable stories in the Bible. But as the author of 2 Kings tells it, Elijah's mantle came fluttering down afterward, and Elisha picked it up. He walked back to the Jordan River and said, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And then he rolled up the mantle, struck the water, and the river parted so that he was able to walk to the other side on dry ground. Those who saw it said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. Whatever else the story of Jesus' ascension means, it seems to mean this, that Jesus' mission on this earth has become our mission, the mission of his followers. And the spirit that rested on Jesus will now rest on us. Because the work that Jesus gave the disciples has not been completed. Not everyone in the world knows Jesus. Not everyone has called him Lord. God's kingdom has not yet come. There is still work for us to do. In today's reading from Acts, two men in white robes show up and ask the disciples, why are you standing here staring up at the sky? I think they might say the same to any Christ follower today. Why are you standing here? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you, for you into heaven, will return in the same way you saw him go. It reminds me of the bumper sticker I once saw. Jesus is coming. Look busy. Yeah. Yes, those angels might say, look busy, but not before you receive the power of the Holy Spirit, because without that, we can do nothing. We can make a difference in the world. We can leave a wonderful legacy. Our vision here at Redeemer is in three parts, and it states, we believe that God has called us to focus on being a church that churched and unchurched people alike love to attend. Second, we believe that our outreach and presence in the area should transform the values and culture of our community. And third, we believe that God will use Redeemer Church as a catalyst for renewal and transformation. Our passion is to assist other churches in becoming healthy and vital congregations. We needed to share that with you today because the good that we do as a congregation is one of the ways we will leave a legacy for the people of this community, as well as many other congregations in the Michigan Conference. Our stewardship emphasis this year is called Difference Maker. And we're being reminded that God has called us to make an impact by what we do, but also by what we give to the cause of Christ. Jesus said in Luke 12, 15, 
A person's life does not consist in the abundance of their possessions. The first century church taught this message when they quoted Jesus saying, it is a greater blessing to give than to receive. So what does it look like for us to measure our lives by what we give and not by what we make or what we do? The answer is that we have to find ways to measure what we give, and the best place is to begin with our bank statements. Since money often does become the measure of our lives, we need to start asking how we give by looking at how much of our resources we actually do give away. People have said that if you want to know your priorities, look at where you spend your money. If God is a priority in our lives, does our bank account show that? What would it look like, or should it look like, if God has first place in our lives? All through the Bible, the tithe has been used as a standard of measurement for our faith and trust in God. The word tithe simply means one-tenth, and God asks us to give one-tenth of what we have back to him as a sign of our faith and trust. It is a symbol of God being a priority in our lives, and it is a good place to start, as a measurement of our giving. For many people, giving one-tenth to the church or to the work of God seems impossible because of our limited and sometimes shrinking incomes. We tell ourselves there's just not enough to go around. We spend all we have on our homes and health care and cars and food and clothes and everything else we need in life, and there's no room left to give money to God. But if we make giving to God a priority, and give our tithe to God first, we find that there is room for everything else. Our spending habits might change, and our priorities might shift, but in the end, everything fits. The message of Scripture is that our giving to God needs to be our top priority, and it needs to come first. Offerings in the Bible were often called the first fruits, because people were called to give to God first. And that call was a smart one, because if we don't give to God first, we'll find that we'll often give little or nothing to God. So the big question is, are you giving to God first, or are you giving what might be left over after everything else gets paid? What is the legacy that you will leave by what you commit to the work of God's kingdom? I would invite you to think this week about what you give to God. Are you anywhere near tithing 10% of all that you make and earn and accumulate? How about 10% of your time? We are each given 168 hours each week. Do we give God 16 hours a week in worship, prayer, and service? Even if we take out 8 hours a day for sleep, we are given 112 hours a week. Do we give God 11 hours a week in worship, prayer, and service? And what about the talents God gives us? Are we using our abilities for God and his purposes? Are we using our expertise and experience, our wisdom and knowledge for God? If not, how can we start to measure our lives by what we give back to God and not just what we have been given by God? God does not call us to give back to him through his church. He also calls us to give to others. In a word, God calls us to be generous with all that we have and to use the fullness of our lives to bless others. That is the legacy that will make a difference and shape the world to be a better place. Please pray with me. 
Lord Jesus, we have been reminded today that you promised your Holy Spirit to be with us so that we can spread your good news to the end of the earth. So strengthen us by the power of your Spirit to be difference makers. Fill us with joy. Teach us how to be grateful and how to spread hope through what we dedicate to you. We want to leave a legacy in this community and in our conference and beyond all that will last for eternity. Give us generous hearts as we commit ourselves anew to make this world a better place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.